Well, I welcome you again uh, to Cottonelle Baptist Church, and I feel privileged once again to have the opportunity to share God's Word with you this morning as we continue through our series called Journey Through the Bible. And uh, this morning we're going to talk about we are exiles. We are exiles. Uh, But before we do, uh, let's pray together one more time. And ask the Lord for a blessing. Lord, we come as people of the risen King who delight to give you praise. We love you, Lord. You're good. You're kind. You're merciful. And you have loved us so greatly, Lord. And and we love, Lord, because you first loved us. Thank you now for this opportunity to hear your word. I pray that you would minister to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, pray that you would touch our hearts this morning. This is not a, 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 mere, a mere exercise. This is not, Lord, us, our attempt to go through the motions. This is our attempt. This is our desire to hear from the living God. So we ask that you would speak from heaven to each of us this morning that we might be changed That we might walk out more faithful, more believing, more loving, more courageous for you than we did when we walked in. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We ask of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. And in our journey through the Bible this morning, we are now in the... um, Part of the biblical storyline, which concerns Israel's exile from the promised land. So, just to give a brief overview, you remember that God God chose Abraham and he made promise to Abraham that the land of he would leave his his home and his kindred to go to the land that he would show him and that he would give that land to him and his offspring. Forever, It was called the promised land that he would make him as many as the stars in the sky and as the sands of the sea. And we know that God did keep his promise. He um, gave him many offspring and they went down into Egypt under uh, Joseph and they multiplied in the land of Egypt. And then God brought them out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and judged the nation of Egypt, and led them through the Red Sea in order to give them the land of promise. But before he brought them into the land, God made a covenant with the nation of Israel at the Mount of Sinai, where he gave them the terms of, uh, the terms of their relationship. They would be his people, and he would be their God, and they were to reflect, their lives were to reflect what it looked like to be a covenant child of God. And that's what the law was, was them keeping God's covenant and living as his redeemed people. Of course, during that that generation, they grumbled against God. They rebelled against God. They They believed the evil report of the ten spies and did not believe God could bring them into the land. And so God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died in the wilderness, not receiving the promise. 
until God brought them in through the hand of Joshua. And they conquered the land. And the, the, it said, the Bible says that the land vomited out the peoples of that land because of their wickedness and idolatry and pagan practices. Then there was the period of Judges in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then God raised up King Saul, David, Solomon. Then we talked about last time how after the days of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. They were called Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And then throughout the period of the, throughout the, period of the kings, the people uh, in the north pretty much the whole time, but in the south eventually yielded to idolatry and to the pagan practices of the nations which dwelt in the land before them in which God told them if they broke his covenant, the land would vomit them out too. And in 722 BC, the kingdom of Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of the kingdom of Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. And the people were in exile. And that brings us to our passage today in 2 Kings chapter 25. So if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. From 2 Kings chapter 25, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then 8 through 11, and then 18 through 21. So 2 Kings 25, beginning in verse 1. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the, on the tenth day of the month... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Uh, oh, sorry, verse 8. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of the king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Verse 18. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold, and, uh, and from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. The word of God. 
You may be seated. I want to see three things from this passage and other passages this morning. Number one, we are exiles because of sin. Number two, we need a new exodus and a new savior. And number three, we are exiles because of salvation. So again, we are exiles because of sin. We need a new exodus and a new savior. And finally, we are exiles because of salvation. First, we are exiles because of sin. Israel was exiled out of the promised land. Why were they exiled out of the promised land? Because they broke God's covenant. God made a covenant with them to be his people. And they his God. So they had high privilege. Again, remember, it's likened unto marriage. Our marriage was given so that we would understand the relationship between God and his people. There, you were, you're, there are blessings of being in covenant relationship, but there are also responsibilities. And they violated the terms, the blessings, uh, the commands of the covenant with God. And God told them what would happen if they did that. In fact, hundreds of years before the exile would take place, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy told them what would happen if they broke God's covenant. God would kick them out of the land. And this is what it says. It's, it's basically, it's a, it's a prophecy, more or less, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 24. God would, uh, uh, the nations would be kicked, uh, Israel would be kicked out of the land, and this is what would happen. It says, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. They broke God's covenant, so God kicked them out of the land. But as we talked about last time, this wasn't the first time. This wasn't the first time that a man got kicked out of the land. As we've said before, back in the very beginning, God made Adam and Eve in his image. And he gave them, the Bible says, the whole earth. The whole earth was to belong to them. They were to be fruitful and multiply and spread over all the earth and be God's kings and queens and have dominion and rule over it as God's people, his chosen people, his created people. They were to rule over the whole earth was their land. But they sinned. They failed, the Bible says. They believed the lie of the devil. And they saw that which God had forbidden and said, I want it. I must have it to be happy, to be wise, to be like God. They believed the lie of the enemy. They sought the desires of their eyes above the word of God. And what happened? The whole earth, the Bible said, was cursed. Death entered into the world because God said, the day that you disobey me, you will surely die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And what happened as a result of their sin? 
You see, God had planted them in the garden, the Garden of Eden. It was, it was as we've talked about before, it was like a garden temple. And it was a place where man dwelt in God's manifest presence. The Bible says God walked and talked with man in the garden, face to face. But when they rebelled against God, they were exiled from God's land. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and from the tree of life, which was to give them eternal life. In Genesis 3.22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, it's very clear what God is saying here, what God is communicating. Man, in their sin, had broken their relationship with God. And in rejecting the God who gave them life, they consigned themselves to death. Therefore, God kicked them out of the land, the good land, the land of promise, the, 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 the land of Eden. But not only that, but, the, but the, the, the core, the essence of the exile was that they no longer had access to the tree of life. In other words, the implication is not explicit, but the implication is very strong here, that if they would have, remember, they could eat of any tree except for one. That is, including the tree of life. The implication strongly is this, that if they would have never disobeyed God, they would have lived forever. We were made to live forever with God in the land that he gave us. But because of sin, we have been exiled from our home, from our land, from our God. We no longer have access to the tree of life. And we are now consigned to death. You see, Adam and Eve's story and Israel's story is our story. We are exiles from God, exiles from the land of promise, exiles from the tree of life. You see, every day you hear another story. Every day, without exception. Someone else is sick. Someone else has been diagnosed with a terrible disease. Someone else has passed away. As mortal humanity, subject to death, then all of our hopes and dreams and expectations of this life, rightly understood, must be be viewed in view of the sure and guaranteed end To which all of us are destined. And that is, everyone will die. That's why you gain more wisdom from going to funerals than you do weddings. Because if you understand life rightly, you understand that we can, yeah, we can ignore it all we want to. But guess what? As your pastor, I love you, so I'm going to tell you, you're going to die. And we never know when. We... Half of us could walk out this door and not make it in next Sunday. We're all going to die. Why? Because of sin. Because we're exiles from this land. And of course, we all know, deep down, we, we know that nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to die. Somehow, even though if this world is all that there is, in reality, death is the most natural thing and we shouldn't be afraid of it. 
But yet, at the same house, sometime, no one wants to die. I think it's quite simple. It's because of this. It's because deep down, being made in the image of God, deep down, we cannot escape the lingering nostalgia, the faint echo of Eden that still reverberates down deep in our hearts. That is, deep down, we know we were made to live forever. That's why no one wants to die. But here we are, exiles like Adam and Eve, like Israel. We have broken faith with our God. We have set ourselves up as the king of the world. And we sit on the throne of our lives rather than allowing God to take his rightful place on it. And what we need, we need, and deep down we all know this too, that we can't make it right. We can't forgive our own sin because we're not the ones whom we've sinned against, primarily. We can't atone for our own sin. We can't even, we can't even go a single day without sinning. How in the world then Will we ever make it back to Eden? We need something, someone to succeed where we failed. To trust God. To keep the covenant. To reject the lies of the devil by the power of the word of God. So that somehow in him we can obtain the blessings of the promise. And get back to the tree of life. We're exiles in this world. Don't you feel it? This world is not as it should be. And that's, that's, one of the ma- that's one of the root reasons of all the problems that we have in the world. is because everybody knows that the world's not as it should be. Just no one knows what to do about it. But that brings us to number two. And that is the solution. That is, we need a new exodus and a new savior. We need a new exodus and a new savior. You may not be familiar with this concept, but it's something for us to think about as we consider the unfolding storyline of Scripture and how, and how the life of Israel played out in history and how that relates to us today as new covenant, not old covenant, but new covenant followers, believers of Jesus Christ. See, Israel was exiled. They broke faith with God. But they became God's people, though, however, by God delivering them from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus. God delivered them through the Exodus. He raised up Moses, the man of God, with whom he talked talked face to face. And he raised him up, and he delivered him with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm by judging the nation of their oppression, the nation of Egypt, and by parting the Red Sea so that they walked across on dry land, and he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt by judging the nation that was oppressing them. He delivered them out through the Exodus in order to what? To bring them to the land of promise. Well, the prophets in Israel, and I'm going to read you some examples they prophesied, the, the, the prophets prophesied about the exile of Israel. In other words, God raised up prophets in, the, in their days, in the days of the kings, telling them that if they continued down the path of rebellion, if they broke the covenant with their God, then God would surely kick them out of the land. The prophets told them that. But not only did that, the prophets also 
prophesied about a day when God would bring them back from exile. God would save them again. God would have mercy on them again, even though they broke faith with him. And the prophets, in a number of places, they characterize this future salvation of Israel from exile as a new exodus, as a second exodus. That is, that in the same way that God judged the nation of Egypt to bring them out of oppression and back into the land, in the same way, God would raise up another prophet, another Moses, if you will, who would go out and gather his people from the four winds and in a new exodus and a new judgment on the lands of their oppression would bring them back to the land of promise. We see this quite plainly in Isaiah chapter 11. This is what it says in verse 10. It says, In that day, the root of Jesse... Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Remember that, root of Jesse. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, remember the northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria. From Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar. Shinar is another name for Babylon. From Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Ephraim was just another term for the northern kingdom of Israel. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who surrass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So we see here that the prophets are characterized this restoration from exile as a new exodus. In in fact, it says the same thing. He'll strike the river, it says, and they'll walk across on sandals. And so it will be for the remnant of his people. And note here who, who is going to affect this It says it's the root of Jesse. Jesse Jesse was, of course, course, uh, David's father. And and, and it's it's a clear reference to the lineage of David and the Davidic Davidic promise that God promised that, that, uh, that an offspring of David would sit on his throne forever and rule the people and lead the people in righteousness and be their king forever. In other words, it's the Messiah. It's the Messiah is the one who would affect this. And this same uh, 
theme is talked about in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is actually writing from exile in Ezekiel chapter 20. And this is what Ezekiel said. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. And I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered and with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant And I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, and they shall not enter the land, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 41, as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries from where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel. The country that I swore to give to your fathers. So, Israel, so Ezekiel here proclaims the same exact message, the new exodus. But of course, this time he, he says something a, a little bit different. Because again, he says in the same way that God judged the rebellious generation in Egypt, in, in the wilderness. Because they rebelled against him. And so they wandered in the 40 years until that entire generation passed away because they would not enter the land. In the same way, in the second exodus, the rebels will not enter the land. So what we need is a new exodus and a new savior. So then the question, of course, is what does this have to do with us? Well, I believe the Bible teaches that we, even though we're Gentiles, the Apostle Paul says that when we believe Like Abraham believed, we become children of Abraham by faith. And heirs, the Bible says, of the promises of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, the true Israel, we are grafted into the tree of Israel. And become inheritors of the promises of God. And Jesus Christ, we know, is the root of Jesse. The offspring of David, the Messiah of God. And Jesus said, he said that what his business would be doing is to be gathering his people, his sheep. From where? From every nation, tribe, and tongue. God's people, God's exiles from all over the world. He's going to be bringing them in. Where? To his kingdom. Jesus in John 10, 16 said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. So remember what Jesus said. He said, am I not like the one who leaves the 99 and finds the one who is lost? The Bible says, you see, that Jesus is the second Adam. Adam failed. He listened to the devil. Jesus succeeded. He refused to listen to the devil, but said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he was what? He was the perfect Jew. What does that mean? It means all Israel broke God's covenant, but Jesus kept it. 
Jesus kept the covenant, the old covenant of God. He kept it perfectly. He was the perfect Jew. He fulfilled the covenant so that what? So that in him, all the blessing that God promised Israel may be granted. Not not to Israel itself, but to Jesus. Because he is the He's the covenant keeper. So that now, now, if you want all the blessings of God, all the blessings that God has promised God, all the blessings of the covenant, even though you are a covenant breaker, and so am I, they can now be accessed because someone has achieved it for us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sins, if you are not, if you unite to him by faith, because Jesus has earned every promise, he's going to give it to you. If you believe in him and trust in him. And if we believe in our shepherd and surrender to our shepherd and listen to our shepherd's voice, he'll lead us, the Bible says, to a new promised land. Remember what Jesus said? John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What is Jesus saying? He's saying Adam had a land. He was kicked out. Israel had a land. They were kicked out. I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the Son of God. God has given me a land. And I'm preparing it for you. And if you're in me, I'm bringing you back. I'm bringing you home. Isn't that what the scripture says? Revelation chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. Talking about the new heavens and the new earth which came down out of heaven. It says, also on either side of the river, what? What's there? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and at night and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See what that means? What is it? It's, it's, it's Jesus Christ bringing us back to Eden. There, in Christ, we were ki- in Adam, we were kicked out of the garden. In Christ, the way to the tree of life is opened again. And we are able to partake of it and live forever in a world free from sin. And what will we do there? With our Jesus, we will reign forever and ever. Like we were made to all along. Dominion over the whole world. Jesus is taking us back to Eden. And we will live forever with him. So we, we are exiles because of sin. And what we need is a new exodus and a new savior. But finally, now, we who are in Christ, we are new exiles because of salvation. We are new exiles because of salvation. Well, pastor, how can this be? 
if we're exiles because of sin, how can we also be exiles because of salvation? Well, it's quite, it's quite simple. In sin, you're one kind of exile, but in salvation, you're a different kind of exile. You see, when you turn from your sin and trust in Christ Jesus and believe in all that he is for you, and receive in him all the promises of God. One exile is ended. You have a homecoming. A sure homecoming in Jesus Christ. One exile is ended, but guess what? Another one begins. That's what the Bible says. 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in sin we are exiled from our true home. From Eden, from heaven, from God. In salvation, we get a homecoming. But it also means that we belong to another world. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Pontius said, so you are king. Peter said, my kingdom's not, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. If I, if, if I was the king of this world, my servants would fight for me. But my kingdom is not of this world. We, as Christians, the Bible says, we live between the ages. The old age has come, has, has come to a close, and the, and the author of Hebrews says it's quickly, it was quickly fading away. The old age, the old covenant. In Christ, the new age has come. The new age is invading the old. The Bible says that if anyone is, is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a miracle has already taken place in your heart. The new age is already invading this world through the kingdom of God, wherever people are bowing the knee to him. But see, we live in the, between the ages. It's the overlap of the ages. The new age is already at work in us, but we still live in the old. You see, I'm saved, but sometimes my attitude forgets it. I'm made new, but my flesh doesn't want to believe it yet. I'm redeemed, but the world in which we live is far from it. And the Bible says that in Christ, then, we are really and truly strangers in our own homes, in our own country, in this world. The Holy Spirit within us cries out that we don't belong here. Remember the Apostle Paul? He suffered everywhere he went for the sake of the gospel. See, he was living for one kingdom, but the Bible says the God of this world was fighting with all that he had against him. 
He suffered everywhere he went for the gospel. And we tend to think, oh, well, that was the Apostle Paul, you know. You know, that, that, was, that, that was that time, you know. That's not, that was, that's not normal. I want to tell you that the Apostle Paul's experience as a Christian is normal Christianity. It is our experience as Christianity is in modern day America that is abnormal. Because throughout the history of the Christian church, the church has always suffered. And in fact, it's not just now, it's, it's not today, today, normal Christianity is suffering. You go anywhere else today, and they're suffering for Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes for us in modern America, we forget that we don't belong here. Paul in 2 Timothy said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, when you try to be godly, people who don't want to be won't like you. It's reality. If you never get any pushback for the way you live your life, you might not be trying very hard to be godly. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And remember what the Apostle Paul said to the church of Philippians? He said this. He says, it is my eager, is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why? For it's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see, and I've heard people say this too, I'm afraid that there's a whole lot of Christians that don't want to be with Jesus. They think heaven's going to be boring. So they want to get as much possible out of this world as they can and then just be saved at the end. If that's you, tell me something. I'm not sure that you know Jesus. For it's far better to be with him. It's far better to be with him. Do you remember what James said from the other night? He said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm afraid that there's a lot of people who they they want to have one foot in heaven, but one foot on earth. They want everything the world can offer, but just not go to hell. We don't belong here. This isn't our home. This is not for us. You see, Jesus told, I I, I spoke at FCA at at South Dodge, 
this Friday, and I read them this passage, Matthew 19, about the rich young ruler. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I cut it off too short because Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus said in another place, you can only serve one master. You can't serve two. Why? Because you can only love one person. You can only love one thing the most. And no matter how much you say otherwise, if you love the world the most, you don't love God. No matter how much you say to the contrary, if you serve this world the most, you don't serve God. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. It's impossible. It's hard, folks. That's why, I'm telling you, that's why we in the West, in the church, in in wealthy America, we cannot ignore this because we feel too comfortable here. We feel too at home here. We really don't want to die and go be with Jesus because there's too much in this life we still want to do. When Jesus said the baseline essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is this, Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's not extreme Christianity. It's basic Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that I die to myself and I live for my Savior. And I set my hope not in this world, but in the world to come. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. You know the answer to that question, don't you? Nothing. In fact, less than nothing. It means you wasted it. The whole life God gave you, and if you lived it for this world, you might die king, but you'll be a pauper in hell. I don't want you to waste your life. I don't want anyone to waste their life. We are exiles. We're exiles, church. We don't belong here. Believe me, life is short, eternity's long. And if if denying a few worldly pleasures now in order to serve and give and go and proclaim Christ and make his name known as much as I possibly can with the limited time and resources I've been given and to put all my focus and effort and all my, all my life in, uh, and to orient my life around God and his kingdom for just a few years means glorious, eternal riches in heaven. It's not even, it's not even, you don't even have to think about it. If we believe it, If we believe it, we got to learn to be exiles again. I'm about to read you a story, but before I do, I just want to say this. I'm going to read the story first. February 17, 2019, seven days ago, last week. 
Quote, Today is the 38th day since I was released from the detention center. I often think about the night I put on prison clothes and entered my cell. I will never forget that night. That day, the prison guard took me to my cell. We passed through three doors and then four more into the detention center. Seven doors total. These seven doors completely isolated me from the world. That night when I was lying on my bed and staring at the ceiling, I felt like I was lying in my grave. I remembered the words of Wang Ming Dao from the earlier generation when he was arrested. It's over. It's all over. At that moment, I truly experienced the despair and emotion that was behind those words. My heart was in anguish to the point of death. I covered my face with a blanket and wept quietly and bitterly. It was as though I was bidding my final farewell before dying. What, what actually made me weep, what made me sad and miserable and hopeless, wasn't having eaten nothing all day and night. It wasn't the extreme cold. It wasn't the grueling interrogation. It wasn't the violence of the national police toward me. It wasn't having to wear a black hood. It wasn't being fired. It wasn't my studio being destroyed. It wasn't being stripped naked before others and losing my dignity. It wasn't being handcuffed. What truly made me weep in anguish and despair was the world. At that moment, I realized that I was actually in love with this world. Before entering the detention center, I always thought that the world was crucified to me and I to the world. But in reality, in the deep recesses of my heart, I had not lost hope in the world or in myself. I often pretended as though I had placed no hope in this world. But if this was truly the case, I would not have been in so much anguish that day. Oh, marriage And that alluring sexual love that is part of marriage, family, children, the joys of life, of family life, the chance to right the wrongs of our country. I was not given enough time to enjoy and experience so many wonderful things in this world. I thought that I would be in there for eight or ten years. After getting out, I would be more than 40. And what could I do then? At that moment, my life was over. And when I thought of these things, my heart was in total anguish and despair. After being baptized, when I was still living in the outside world, I thought that it was no longer I who lived, but the Lord Jesus Christ who lived in me. But at that moment, I truly realized that it was still I who lived, that I was still living for my own desires. And I did not really believe that the gospel was everything to me. We don't belong here. And sometimes it takes God doing this to remind us of it. And here's what I want to say. It's coming for us. It's coming for us. Some of you, you may not be concerned about it because you might not be here. But let me tell you something. I believe within my lifetime, within the lifetime of our children and our grandchildren, to stand for the truth of Christianity 
is going to cost us. And let me tell you something. When it begins to cost us, where you truly put your treasure will be revealed to you. And I believe, I believe on that day, many people who said over and over and who went to church every Sunday and said my hope was in Jesus, when it cost them something, they'll realize their hope is really in this world and not in Jesus. But I also will believe this too. I also believe this too, that there are many who hope in Christ, that we, you can't, we can't imagine suffering for Christ, but when that day comes, God will give you the strength to endure. But your pastor is telling you this now so that when it comes, it won't catch you off guard. What happens when speaking out about biblical sexual ethic from the pulpit becomes a hate crime? Will you visit your pastor in prison? What happens when the company that you work for doesn't want doesn't want to lose its image in the public by having an employee that believes in the Christian sexual ethic. Are you going gonna to lose your job for Jesus Christ? Will you? So what do we do? We are exiles here. Believe in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Agree with Paul when he says... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Far better to be with him. And you'll be ready. And I close this morning just making this appeal. What, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus is worth it. And if you don't know him, you can today. And your, your life your heart, your eternity can be changed forever by looking to Jesus with eyes of faith, by turning from your sins, by inviting him to come into your heart and say, I believe in you, I trust in you, you come in my life, you take charge, Lord Jesus, and I will follow you. And you'll know the joy and the hope that only Jesus Christ can bring. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your truth. I thank you for this dear